I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 114. About IBD is excited to be partnering on this new limited podcast series, How to Be Happy and Healthy with IBD. I think one of the ways that the IBD space is unique is that there are so many myths and misconceptions. Here are just a few of the ones that I've heard over the years. Number one, people with IBD make themselves sick with stress or nerves. Number two, people with IBD can't or shouldn't become parents. Number three, IBD is the same as irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. Number four, ulcerative colitis is less serious than Crohn's disease. Number five, IBD is caused by a poor diet. These are only a few and they are all false. But here's the question. How do we go about letting people know when they have their facts wrong? To set the record straight, I talked to Dr. Siobhan Proxel, a gastroenterologist at the Crohn's and Colitis Center at the University of Miami, and Molly Dunham-Friel, ulcerative colitis patient and founder of Better Bellies by Molly. They tell me how IBD myths affect patients and what we can do about them. Our topic is common misconceptions about IBD. There are so many myths Even as a long-term patient myself, I feel like I'm still hearing new ones all the time. For that reason, I've asked two guests to come and share their knowledge and experience. With me is Dr. Siobhan Praxel, Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Praxel, thank you for coming on about IBD. Would you take a minute to introduce yourself? Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Um, So as Amber said, my name is Siobhan Proxel. I am a gastroenterologist at the University of Miami, and I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease. I did all of my training up in Pittsburgh, um, but I'm originally from the South Florida area. So I moved back last year, and now I'm working with a great group at the Crohn's and Colitis Center at the University of Miami. Thank you so very much. Also, I have with me Molly Dunham-Friel, ulcerative colitis patient and the founder of Better Bellies by Molly. Molly, we've worked a little bit together in the past, but I'm excited to get to know you better today. So thank you so much for coming on. Would you introduce yourself for just a minute? Sure. Thanks, Amber. So like Amber said, my name is Molly Dunham-Friel. I am an ulcerative colitis patient, and I've had IBD since 2012. I also live with IBS. I'm now a patient advisor and like Amber already said, the founder of Better Bellies by Molly, which is really my platform to improve lives for patients who live with IBD and IBS. I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to your perspective. I told you before that you were the patient for this topic, so I can't wait to hear what you have to say. So I'm going to start with you, Dr. Prexel. We know that there's a lot of misconceptions about IBD amongst the general public. So what are some of the ones that you've heard in your practice? I think when patients come and see me, the two biggest misconceptions that I hear are one, they did something to themselves to cause Mm. it. It's their fault. Mm. They're always asking, what did I do? What could I have done differently? And then the second um, is a little bit more sex specific, but along the lines of many women feel that because they now carry this diagnosis, they are unable to get pregnant or cannot have a safe or healthy pregnancy because of it. They think those are two very, very big misconceptions that I hear weekly, I would say, in my practice when I'm seeing new patients. 
Wow. That's, you know, it's always a little bit surprising to me because for myself, I don't think I've ever spent a minute thinking that I did something to give myself IBD. Maybe I'm alone in that. And as the co-founder of IBD Moms, this is something that we work at every day is to help people understand that they can get pregnant, they can have a healthy pregnancy, they can have a healthy baby, even though that they're living with IBD. So thank you so much for your work in that area because it's really, really important. Molly, most IBD patients have had to field a lot of IBD myths from friends and family, sometimes coworkers. What are some of the ones that you've heard? Sure. I actually was getting my hair done the other day and I told the hairstylist that I had IBD and she said, oh, so you can't poop? And I said, actually, no, that's not. I was like, yes, for some people that is the case, but for me, it's not really the case. It's more the opposite um, for me. But that was one um, you can't poop. Uh, you poop all the time. You can't stop pooping. That a lot of people interchange IBD and IBS and start using them interchangeably. And so that's another one that's really huge. And that, you know, you look fine, like the disbelief that you have a disease, like that you have IBD or that it is severe. Um, I would say those are the, the most common. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. How did that come up at a hair appointment? I'm wondering. <laughs> um, so I think that was because I was explaining that I'm like that I founded Better Bellies by Molly and that's what I've been uh-huh. working on and that, you know, I support patients with IBD. And so uh, it kind of just got the conversation rolling or and occasionally it will come up when I'll say, oh, I have IBD. So it's applicable in this way. But I think I was just self-promoting. Well, you know, I was going to say my stylist knows, of course, about what I do for a living. And she knows that I have a podcast because as the host of a podcast, I am obligated to tell every single person that I meet that I have a podcast. That's (laughs) one of the things that you're supposed to do. Self-promotion. Can't get away from it. Uh, Dr. Proxell, it sounds like your patients tell you about the things that they've heard about IBD that might not be true. Are there times when you have to sort of coax it out of them or do they feel a little bit uncomfortable in talking to you about some of the things that they've heard that aren't necessarily true? I think that it's very much dependent on the person. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when I meet somebody for the first time, we're starting to develop a relationship. And typically, one of the questions that I ask is, what do you know Mm -hmm. about your diagnosis? What have you heard about it and what questions do you have about it? Because I'd like to know what people's perspective is. Um, Some people have a very strong family history of inflammatory bowel disease and they've had a lot of exposure and a lot of experience with it. And then some people have never even heard of it, right? And, Mm -hmm. And like Molly was saying, confuse IBD and IBS, it's very common. And they have a different perspective Potentially, right? I do have many patients ask me ask me if there's anything that they did to cause it. And so I, I try to elicit an understanding of what they know, what they're comfortable with, and then we delve deeper and deeper into it throughout the development of our relationship. Some people are a lot more comfortable in the beginning and some people take a little bit of time and either is completely fine. Um, but it's important to be at a place with your provider at some point where, where you feel like you can talk to them about pretty much anything. Perfect. I love that you ask, well, what have you heard? You know, that's such a very neutral way to 
get that information so that you can dig into it and, and understand where they're coming from and something that you might need to help them understand better. That's really perfect. Molly, when you hear misconceptions about IBD when you're getting your hair done or you're doing something else, or I'm sure through your platform, especially probably through Instagram, uh, you hear these things from people. How do you let people know that what they have heard or what their understanding is might not be correct? Sure. So I try to acknowledge it their misconception just with compassion and understanding that, you know, I understand why they might have that misconception. Um, first address it that way so that I don't come off too harsh, like, no, you are wrong. Instead, <laughs> I understand IBD and IBS sound so mm-hmm. similar. It's just one letter difference, but two totally different diagnoses and like, this is what they are and how they are different. And I kind of just explain it from that standpoint. And then I even have those conversations conversations in person. Um, I had one recently the other day um, when I was working out and I explained, you know, someone started follow the trainer started following Better Bellies by Molly on Instagram and he was complimenting everything I did, but he was interchangeably using IBD and IBS as the same thing and referring to his friend who had Crohn's and I really couldn't let that go. So I Mm. had to say they sound so similar, but they're very, very different and helping him understand that Crohn's and colitis, like his friend with Crohn's, has IBD and then is very different than IBS. And so just kind of trying to be uh, personable and compassionate um, and address why people have these misconceptions. Just like another misconception is that you can cure your IBD. And that I would say comes across on Instagram a lot. Mm -hmm. And so understanding, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm so excited that you're in remission. I'm so excited that, you know, you don't have any detectable disease. That's so great. But, you know, unfortunately, there still isn't a cure and sort of Mm -hmm. coming at it from a compassionate standpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I think you're really good at that. It's for myself, I think it's a little bit more challenging. Like I've had someone say to me, oh, I don't have IBD. I have Crohn's disease. And I was like, I didn't, I I, like, I really wanted to help. (laughs) Like I really wanted to help. I just didn't know how without sounding like that well, actually, person. Yeah, so exactly. Sometimes I come off that way, too. I think it's hard, especially when you're answering the same question or mm-hmm. addressing the same misconception day after day. It can be hard, um, especially when patients who have IBD, you know, don't even believe that they have it anymore and you mm. can't change their mind. So mm-hmm. it can be tough. And sometimes you just have to walk away. Dr. Proxell, we know that there's stigma associated with IBD. How do you see stigma around IBD affecting your patients? And do you think it might contribute to delays in diagnosis or in receiving care? I think that, um, I think stigma can be viewed in a few different ways. So, so Mm -hmm. one is, um, you know, a little bit related to the misconception that we were talking about and that you did something to cause it. So, so it's a problem, right? And it's a problem that it was only self-induced and, and people, a lot of people that come to me say, but I'm so healthy and Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so healthy and I have no other issues. Why is this happening to me? And, and there's a stigma around having a chronic disease 
first of all. I think that a lot of that can also be very difficult in a work environment Mm -hmm. as well, particularly when you're at first sick and getting diagnosed and needing to use the bathroom regularly. It's uncomfortable, right? To have to say, oh, I have to go. Oh, I have to go again. Get up in the middle of a meeting. It's it's embarrassing. So those stigmas definitely come across. I think the other thing that's difficult is a lot of people will initially get diagnosed with other issues like Mm -hmm. IBS before they'll get diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease. So then there's also, there can be a delay in treatment in that regard. Um, And then I think that the other thing in in having a chronic illness is, is people are can also be afraid to tell mm. people. Um, mm-hmm. And not that it's anybody's business, right? It's, it's your mm-hmm. own personal business about who you want to tell. But many, many of our patients are diagnosed at a very young age. And as they grow and they develop relationships, whether it be with friends or partners, those are things that, that can ultimately be hard and difficult to disclose. And I think all of those really play a role in seeking care as well. Mm-hmm. Molly, has there been any times, I know the answer to this is yes, but have there been any times when you've experienced some stigma and what did you do? How did you handle it? Sure. Um, yeah, I would say it's hard not to live with IBD for 10 years and, and feel stigmatized in some st- um, points in the journey. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like I have experienced stigma from everything from a friend to a coworker to healthcare providers, even gastroenterologists, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And when it came from like some of the gastroenterologists that I had early on, they would just dismiss me. And I think it's really hard sometimes to get to feel heard and to not just feel like some like you're complaining or like you're a hypochondriac of some sorts because you can't Mm -hmm. really see your disease or um, even though they, of course, had it on my colonoscopy, right? So I feel like I I felt stigmatized maybe as um, just like a young female um, early on Mm -hmm. in the diagnosis, especially, you know, when I was previously seeing a male, a male uh, provider. And then I've also Mm -hmm. like the looks that you get when you tell someone that you have IBD and IBS, but really when you say I have inflammatory bowel disease, um, it's the body language that someone sometimes portrays Mm -hmm. to you that I can't really explain it. There's no word to describe it. You, I would just describe it as you can tell you're making them uncomfortable and you can tell they're slightly disgusted. And I feel like (laughs) it's especially hard to live with when I was younger now, Mm. but when I was 23, I cared a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, most people get diagnosed between the ages of 15 and 30, right? And those are such formative years. I mean, to get this diagnosis and then go to college, mm-hmm. it's so hard. Yeah, and especially being young and dealing with the generalization that young people are healthy, young people don't understand what the older people were going through or having to use the healthcare system. I was like... Like I could just remember fighting the tears at the workplace because everyone just Mm. didn't just dismissed me. They didn't know what was going on with me. I wasn't ready to talk about it at the time because I was just getting diagnosed. But the misconceptions, they just fly rampant everywhere. And sometimes you can address them by um, speaking up for yourself. and, And I do that now, but sometimes it's easier to just walk away and 
not engage in the conversation. So I think, you know, if you're a patient, just listen to your gut and, you know, just follow your intuition in the moment. Mm-hmm. I just didn't tell people. <laughs> Literally, that's how I got through college is I didn't tell people because the couple times that I did, I've never broken it down quite in that way. Uncomfortable and also disgusted. But you are absolutely correct. That is the look that you see in people's eyes. And then once they get over that, and then you see a little bit of wheels turning behind their eyes, and then sometimes you get a really bizarre question that has nothing to do with anything. And there's no (laughs) way to anticipate what it's going to be. And some of them are wild. And so as a consequence, I think my defense was just to not tell people unless they really, really, really needed to know. I think a lot of my patients will even do that because I'll offer to write a note for work or to fill out, you know, paperwork. And they're like, no, 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 it's okay. And I was like, I really think you need to have this in place Mm -hmm. so that you can get those, you know, accommodations that you may need. And most of the time, eventually people will come back and, and ask for everything to be filled out or just to make sure that if something happens in the future, then we're not, you know, flying by the seat of our pants, trying to get things taken care of. But but it's a really, really tough thing because it's so personal. It is. And I do feel like that's the difference between when I was first diagnosed and I wasn't feeling like an empowered patient. And then now over the years, becoming an empowered patient and feeling like I have a voice at the table. And that's part of why I started Better Bellies by Molly, which is to help other patients feel empowered, to feel like, oh, yeah, Dr. Poxell, I really need that letter. Um, I'm going to talk to my employer or I'm going to let these folks know about my disease and and I don't need to be ashamed in it. And so I learned that over the years. And so now I'm trying to help other patients learn that. Um, and it sounds like you're doing that in your clinic, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Molly, do you have a elevator speech that you give? Oh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's not refined or anything, but elevator speech is I have ulcerative colitis, which is a type of inflammatory bowel disease commonly known as IBD. There's two main types of inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. There are other types, but Crohn's and colitis are the most common, and I have ulcerative colitis. I also have IBS, which stands for irritable bowel syndrome, which is a completely separate diagnosis, not related to my IBD. Very nice. And then that idea the IBD and the IBS can occur in the same person at the same time. I think that's wild. First of all, it's wild. Okay. <laughs> but then also to have other people wrap their head around that as well can be really, really challenging. So I love that you include both of those things to try to help more people understand how these conditions affect you and can affect other people too. Occasionally I will go over like how the inflammation in Crohn's is continuous and can affect anywhere from the mouth to the anus versus ulcerative colitis is just in the colon. Sometimes I go into that detail and other times I don't. It depends on the audience. I did it today because I was teaching med students. (laughs) I always start off asking them if they know the difference between IBD and IBS and maybe maybe one person does but not not really you know and I don't expect them to and I I've done this for like students in occupational therapy school and and a variety and and frankly like 
some people I work with, you know, don't necessarily know the difference either. So I make sure we clarify that and then we kind of go down the line, but it's always fun. Well, thank you for <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And then obviously it's really clear that patients and doctors need to be in this together to do this myth busting. So Dr. Proxell, you've already explained how you teach other people about the differences, for instance, between IBD and IBS, and then the differences between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So what is your advice to other healthcare professionals about how they can recognize these myths and misconceptions and how they can get accurate information to their patients? Yeah, I think that um, in speaking to patients, and, and first of all, you need to listen to them and you need to understand where they're coming from and you need to understand where they got that information. And sometimes it's just confusion, right? You misunderstood what they were saying or, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. But I find that one, obviously, when when you are seeing patients, and you're not a gastroenterologist, you're not an IBD provider, and you're concerned that something is going on, listening to their history very carefully is obviously important. The other thing I'll say is that IBS is a diagnosis of exclusion as well. So if somebody walks into your office and has had no workup whatsoever, you really need to start to delve deeper into why things are happening because I think there's many, many things that can possibly occur. Um, in terms of misconceptions, I, whenever my patients tell me something that I you know, find to be a common misconception or just a misconception in general, I ask them where they got the information from. And then a lot of them will smile and they'll be like, Facebook or something like that. And I was like, well, how reliable do you think it is? And they're like, eh, again, anyone can post whatever they want. And yeah. so then we always circle back to things like the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation or, you know, resources that are that are more reliable, IOIBD. Um, and then some of the conferences too, they're really starting to involve patients a lot as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, so all of those things we kind of circle back to. But we, we do, you know, we kind of delve into it. We think, okay, who put up this information? Why might they have put up this information? Do they potentially have a secondary gain from posting this? Like, are they selling something, you mm -hmm. know? So, so we kind of look at it from that perspective. And sometimes, you know, there's, there's really, really great points that are just not typical Western medicine that I think are really, really good things to consider. And then sometimes there's things that are like a little bit of fear mongering and off the wall. And, and mm -hmm. those are the things that really concern me because I don't want my patients to be afraid. Right. And I don't want them to do things that are dangerous. And, but I also want them to know that they can come and talk to me about things and tell me what's going on with mm -hmm. things and what their questions are and what their concerns are. And, you know, is this something that I could try? Like one of my patients just sent me a message with a picture of this like new vitamin supplement. I was like, well, send me the ingredients. Let's see what's in it. Let's see what it looks like. It's just a multivitamin that someone was trying to market to IBD people, mm -hmm. you know? So, so I think the important thing is, you know, making sure that your patients are comfortable talking to you about these things and then gauging, you know, what is potentially 
dangerous mm-hmm. and then you know what is not dangerous and might not have great data for being effective but could potentially help you know like we found a lot of we do a lot of dietary research at um mm-hmm. obviously and so if you ask somebody like a decade ago or 20 years ago they say oh diet has nothing to do with this yep. you know but for a lot of people it, it plays a big role if you have chronic inflammation for, and it takes a while to get things under control, then you can have leftover nerve damage from it as well. So gut-focused hypnosis is a really great great way to address something like that. So there's many, many different avenues to pursue. And I think the thing that upsets me the most is when someone tells me, oh, I brought this up to my other doctor and they basically wouldn't acknowledge it or told me something was all in my head. And I'm like, well... The gut and the brain are very well connected, but, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know, I just, I think just exploring everything is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that often gets lost in the harms, you could say, well, there's no harm in trying it, but sometimes these things that people want to try cost money. And to me, you know, that's a harm. That can be a harm that it's something that you invest your time and money in and then it just doesn't it doesn't work for you. So mm-hmm. that's something that I tell patients sometimes that it's like, okay, but think about it from all of these angles, not just evidence it might work or it might not work, but also yeah. your cost, the time that you're going to spend doing it, things like that. That's a huge, those are huge factors as well. Molly, do you have any tips for people with IBD or IBS as they navigate these conversations when they're faced with myths or with stigma? You already said that you like to approach it with compassion, which I love. Are there any other things that you do? Sure. So yeah, in addition to leading with compassion, I also try to inform and educate. And then I also try to acknowledge the parts that the person got right. Um, So if they got part of what they're talking about accurate, I try to address that, even if that's just uh, to kind of cushion the blow of before you explain to them what they didn't get right, just taking that approach, but then also um, using, using your, your patient voice and being, you know, a leader and feeling like empowered enough to educate other people, you know, with that compassionate sense, you don't need to come off um, as if you know everything, nobody knows everything, but just speaking from the heart and speaking from your lived experience, because nobody can take away or discredit like your lived experience. And that can't be taken away or discounted. And so use that knowledge to help others and to help, you know, address these misconceptions and to reduce stigma um, by speaking up for yourself when you do feel comfortable. Um, It can be very empowering, actually, to stand up for yourself. I agree. Dr. Proxell, you mentioned the International Organization for the Study of Inflammatory Bowel Disease, which is the IOIBD and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Are there any other resources that you like to share with patients to help them understand IBD and then what could be a myth and then what could be true? I think those two are probably my my most referred ones. I also um, refer to the IBD Parenthood Project mm-hmm. quite a bit as well. I really, really like that resource um, because, again, we're diagnosing patients who are very young 
many of whom at some point in their lives are interested in having children. So I find that that's a very, very good resource because once you start to Google IVD and having kids, you're on a deep, dark, scary black hole. Mm -hmm. And, and so I want to make sure that, that all of those are good resources. I also like the fact that Crohn's and colitis has a lot of support groups essentially Mm -hmm. wherever you are. So one of our dietitians or the support group down here, and I find those to be helpful. Um, at my prior institution, we also had patient advocates and patient, um, uh, representatives that were now, uh, like embedded with our team. So we mm-hmm. had this peer to peer network that we would refer to when patients were first diagnosed, mm-hmm. which was very, very helpful or something had changed and they were potentially needing a surgery or, or a big shift, you know? And so I, I think that having those types of resources are, are excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I found that the, the one-on-one, like when my surgeon connected me with another patient who had a J pouch, that was really probably, f- and of course this was in 1999, so there was no, there was no social media, <laughs> but connecting me with somebody who had been through it already was probably the most impactful because I asked my surgeon all of the technical questions and he could tell me how things were going to go and how many days in the hospital and how many days at home and what about work and whatever. But this other gal could tell me about what her life was like, yeah. you know, and I loved my surgeon, but th- he couldn't, he didn't have a J pouch. So he couldn't tell me what life was right. like as a young woman. <laughs> right. right. We can only say so much. I think that one thing that people have a lot of concerns about that they are very afraid to bring up are intimacy issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, I think, two parts to this. One part is when people get diagnosed at a young age and their parents accompany them to their mm-hmm. appointments all the time. Yeah. I'm an adult gastroenterologist. I technically see adults. Mm-hmm. I see many, many patients with their parents. Mm-hmm. And at some point, once we are, you know, in, in a place that's a little bit better or potentially in a place that's a little bit worse and they're scared. I really want to have that conversation with people. Um, so I've kicked parents out of the room before in a very, very nice way, but their kid is not going to want to have that conversation in front of them at 26 years old. And one of my patients was 26 or 27 and I had her parents leave and she was like, that's the first time anybody's ever asked my parents to leave an appointment so they could talk to me about these things. And it's a big deal. Yeah. With IBD in general, you know, whether or not you're flaring or you feel good or you have perianal disease or there's a, an ostomy, there's so many different things that, that can affect it. So that's a huge thing that I, that I think is hard to talk about. Um, and you really, I feel like need to devote a lot of time to it, which is tough in mm-hmm. our current healthcare system, you know, Um, but, but that's one thing that I had wanted to mention earlier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's a great thing to bring up. I, no provider has ever mentioned it to me, like anything about intimacy, no one's asked me and I, I've had IBD from 23 to 33 so far, and it's never come up unless I've said something myself, which is a little shocking, but I'm glad you brought it up and I'm so thankful about it. Mm-hmm. I think it's really tough and, and it's it's really not something that I can necessarily build into a regular visit all mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah. Um, but there are certain scenarios in which I I make it a point 
to bring it up Mm -hmm. or I can kind of get from some insinuations during an appointment that it's an issue and and I'll flat out ask. Um, It's something that we used to like collect some data on as well. So if we had that information, we, we knew in advance and could take a look at it. But part of the issue is you have so many things to talk about in Mm -hmm. such a short period of time Mm -hmm. that it kind of starts to fall to the wayside. And I, I really think it's something that, that we as providers need to work on myself included like this is not something that I I ask during every visit and it's something that I really need to start to to add in again mm-hmm. the day that I marched into my surgeon's office <laughs> and had to ask him that question okay the staples are out when can I have sex with my husband <laughs> you know and it was just like you know it wasn't brought up otherwise no one ever brought that up not right. not pre-surgery, not my stoma nurse, like nobody. So right. it was it was up to me. And, you know, you, you have to ask. Mm-hmm. And I think asking other patients can help you get a certain amount of information. But I really feel like at the end of the day, after you've had surgery or if you have something like perianal disease, your doctor really needs to weigh in on things like that and needs to tell mm-hmm. you, give you some guidelines or some framework to work with. Mm-hmm. Molly, same question for you. Are there any resources that you'd like to send patients to when they're learning about IBD or there's a, a, a myth or a misconception that they're dealing oh, with? Oh, sure. Well, I use the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation website all the time. I commonly will mm-hmm. drop links into a chat or into a DM um, to send them directly. Um, I also... Um, agree with uh, Dr. Proxel on the uh, support groups. I also was a moderator for three years for one of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation support groups. Now they are mostly online, so they are accessible to so many more people now. Don't be afraid mm-hmm. to go. Um, I remember, you know, how I was nervous to go to my first support group about five years ago, and but it was the best choice um, that I ever made, and I met so many great people, and I'm still connected to them today. But mostly the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation um, in terms of like reputable sources for IBD specifically. There's uh, so many other great websites out there, but that's the main one that I point people to on a regular basis. Dr. Proxel, I'm wondering, is there anything coming up for you fun now that hopefully we're in a better place and people can travel more and do more things? What are you looking forward to this spring? Well, some people might define it as fun. Some people might define it as a little bit more work, but I'm, I'm having my second child in a couple months. Um, so we're excited. Um, it will be, you know, lack of sleep and that whole thing, but it'll, it'll be it'll be an interesting transition. So we're excited for that. Yeah, it's worth it. The second one is, that's like, it's a kick in the pants, I gotta say. But seeing your kids interact with one another, I mean, there's just no, I like anybody would be willing to go without sleep for that, you know? So Molly, I'm sure that you have one. Is there an embarrassing or funny story about your IBD or your IBS that you could share with us? Oh, I don't know about funny. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. On the spot. Um, I would say 
embarrassing for sure. There's plenty of those. I would say one of the most yeah. embarrassing times with my IBD was when I was at the pool in the pool and I had to go to the bathroom so bad and they locked the bathrooms at the pool. <gasps> and so I was in my bikini and all of a sudden I was like, Oh no, it's happening. Like I knew that feeling. I was like, Oh no. And I had to climb five floors of stairs that were like open to the public in a way. Um, yeah. Literally like holding my bum going to the, like as fast as I could get back to the toilet. And I didn't like fully make it, but I almost <laughs> made it like into the doorway. So like, at least I was like kind of in my house, but it was awful and embarrassing. And even though just my like now husband, but boyfriend at the time was with me, it was, mm-hmm. yeah, it was embarrassing and it was awful. And mm-hmm. I like, luckily was able to like kind of make it out of the main audience, but it was still mm-hmm. stressful and anxiety provoking and embarrassing. Is it funny now at all or not not yet? Um, I would say it's been enough time that I can definitely laugh about it now. That's a good thing, okay. you know, and good. I try to use humor as much as I can to get through, you know, life with IBD and it def- definitely helps, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. There's really nothing else that you can do. Every single patient has an answer to that question and it is usually a pooping your pants story. I know. Does it have to be a poop your pants story? But in this case, it was poop your bikini, which is like <laughs> another <laughs> level there. Luckily, there was Thank you so much, Molly, Dr. Proxel. I really appreciate your time and your perspective on talking about myths and misconceptions around IBD and how we can educate people and help them become more empowered patients and learn more about these diseases. Thank you both so much for coming on about IBD. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, super listener. Thanks to Dr. Siobhan Proxel for sharing her knowledge and experience with IBD myth busting. As an educator, she's working to make sure healthcare providers understand what's true and what's not when it comes to IBD. You can follow her on Twitter as at Siobhan IBD, and that is spelled S-I-O-B-H-A-N-I-B-D. Thank you also to Molly Dunham Friel, who is both educating and making us laugh about IBD and IBS. You can find her on her website, betterbelliesbymolly.com, and on Instagram and Facebook as at betterbelliesbymolly. Links to a written transcript, everyone's social media handles, and more information on the topics we discussed is in the show notes and on my episode 114 page on aboutibd.com. Thanks for listening, and remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. The American Gastroenterological Association and About IBD, How to Be Happy and Healthy with IBD podcast series is supported by Arena Pharmaceuticals. About IBD is a production of Malintel Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Mac Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. 